What's up, everybody? You're listening to World Your Oyster, and I'm your host, Paula Sanders. And today we continue our Oyster Archive series with an episode that will inspire you and touch your soul. Our guest is the incredibly talented and well-known visual artist, Chantel Martin. She has had a remarkable career, but her journey to success wasn't an easy one. Growing up in a rough neighborhood in London, Chantel faced numerous challenges that shaped her into the person that she is today. In this episode, we dive deep into the life of Chantel Martin, beyond the art and the fame, to uncover the woman behind the powerful slogan that she uses, who are you? It's a vulnerable and heartfelt share that will inspire you to embrace your true self and find strength in your unique identity. Chantel's story is a testament to the resilience of the human spirit and the power of self-expression through art. So join us as we take a glimpse into the life and heart of Chantel Martin. And remember, her story reminds us that we all have the strength to create a beautiful and authentic life, no matter the obstacles that we face. This is a profound and moving episode that we are truly honored to share with you again. Chantel, Thank you so much for being a part of our story here at World's Your Oyster. Monica and I are honored to call you a friend, and I hope that we get to see you soon. This was such a special one. I know that I've told you this, but I was so nervous to interview you. I honestly, it's the only episode that I froze during and had absolutely nothing to say. So kudos to you for being the number one person to scare me. But I'm so happy that we did this and we're sending you big love and lots of hugs. Everybody, enjoy the episode. Bye-bye. Welcome to World Your Oyster. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank <laughs> you for joining us. Such an incredible view. It's nice. We're all feeling very inspired by what's happening here. Sadly, you can't see it, but it's a beautiful sunset here in New York City. <laughs> and it's very chill. I kind of like this evening session vibe that we have. We usually uh, record during the weekends on Sundays, and it's like, hi, this is beautiful, like calm energy. <laughs> It feels like a Friday evening, but it's only Wednesday. It does. It does. Well, before we start, I, I really want to set an intention for this episode because I feel that everything that you do is filled with such intention. So before we start, um, we really hope that we can have a wonderful conversation with you and pull some things out that maybe you haven't talked about before. Um, we really hope to leave our listeners feeling inspired and to continue to push and look inside of themselves to figure out who they are. And I'd be lying if I didn't say I was quite um, nervous to interview you. But as I started to write down your questions, I remembered a couple of months back, um, sitting in a dark room in New York City with you and about 50 other people. And it was a stage, a spotlight, a keyboard, and you were about to perform. And you looked up and you said that you were nervous. And it was the first time since I met you that I was like, wow, she's just a human too. <laughs> and then the pen got flowing. I wanted to start this conversation a different way, but then I spoke with Monica and she said, you know what? I think that we should first start by asking Chantel, who are you? I knew you was going to ask that. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, let's go back to London and start from the beginning, but I'm like, you know what? Let's get juicy right yeah. away, baby. Don't bore us. Get to the chorus. Well, you know, you just described this dark room that we were all sitting in and, you know, there was just me on stage admitting that at the time I was nervous. And, and you know, I think 
I am essentially human. I'm human, just like us. I'm a curious person that is seeking my purpose. And that's the age old question of like why we're here as people. You know, we're essentially here just trying to find our way. And so who is Chantel? Who am I? I'm a curious child out in the world trying to make things and share things, but also being curious about myself and the world and how that all connects together and how that makes sense. I love that. (laughs) No, but I love the fact that you always tap into your curious child and that you carry that inner child with you everywhere you go. And do you look at it as an inner child or do you look at her more as an outside persona? I think I had the most profound experience probably a year ago when I went back to London and I was commissioned to do this drawing that was going to go around, um, how do you say, you know, like a construction site. You have the... Like the wall that they yeah. put up to hide the construction. Yeah. So you put up that wall where you hide the construction. In England, we call it a hoarding. I don't mm-hmm. really know what the term is in America. We probably don't have. I don't know. Yeah. I don't think one. there is one, but you know, you've, <laughs> you've all seen it like that blue yeah. barrier that goes around the construction site. So mm. So where I grew up in Southeast London, I grew up in this big kind of council estate. You know, in, in America, you call it the projects. In England, we have a nicer name for it. We call it a council estate. It sounds nice, but in theory, it's not. But so the council estate that I grew up on, they started to knock it down. And so they had this big construction barrier that went around it. And they were asking local, local artists to design artwork that would go around so it wasn't as ugly that's kind of cool and so they reached out to me because they knew that I was from this area called Thamesmead and they you know reached out and we know you were from Thamesmead Chantel we'd love you to design some artwork and we'll pull it on you know a, a small section of this barrier that goes around the construction site so I agreed because I knew that some of my friends and family still live there so I I, I created the artwork they pulled it up and then I was gonna visit London so I was like oh I can go and see it so I told a couple of my sisters who met me in Thamesmead where this was. And as we were walking around the, the barrier and then eventually we found my artwork, I looked at my two sisters and they looked at me and my sisters were like, do they know? And we were with the people who commissioned me and, and I was like, I'm, I don't know. So I turned around and I asked the people who commissioned me to do this artwork, do you know that you put this artwork right below the flat that we used to live in? And they said, No. And so this was like the most bizarre experience because this could have been miles along anywhere else, but the one position that they pull it on was exactly below the flat, the apartment that we used to live in that was now knocked down. Mm -hmm. Wow. Not a coincidence. And this is the universe showing me this moment of who little Chantel was or is. And so I stood there, one of the most profound experiences of my life, looking up at blue sky but I could see the building that was there before and I could see little Chantal looking out at me. And, heart is- <laughs> and, and so when I lived there, it was not a nice time really. In, I didn't really have a great childhood, but I saw this little Chantal, hopeless, helpless. I used to stare out of the window a lot and just look at the cars and buses and just wonder where everyone else was going and what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And so that was the first time I really saw the bridge between triumph me standing there and trauma little Chantel in there and instead of there being this gray apartment building now there was just blue skies and two cranes and that's the point of art that's the point of creativity it's a bridge from trauma to triumph I don't think we actually really realize it 
and what that means or what it really is tangibly. And I don't think I did until that moment. And I like totally got goosebumps just seeing myself looking at me in the future because I never imagined I had a future. And then now there was me just looking back at the sky, which is now my future's future, you know, beyond where I am now. Did you talk to that little girl at that moment? Yeah, I, I, I did. And I was like, this is the other side. This is the bridge and where we did it and we're still doing it. And I'm only here because you were there. She's proud. Yeah. Yeah. That is yeah. really exciting wow. and beautiful. Thank you for sharing that yeah. with us. So tell us a little bit more can, about your life in London. And I know that you said it wasn't the best upbringing, but how did you, just a few tidbits and then your transition out of London. Yeah. So, you know, I grew up, I have five siblings, you know, we had fun growing up, you know, there's always kind of good times and highlights, but I think ultimately I grew up in Southeast London, you know, uh, in the eighties and I, I grew up in a very white working class, racist, homophobic place. Um, that's I'm, ideal. Perfect. Uh, and and <laughs> no. I look like me, you know, yeah. and, no. and, and so, you know, it's, it's interesting to grow up in a place where you never feel like you're, you belong. And it's interesting to go up, grow up in a place where you're always treated like an outsider. And so when you're young, you want to fit in, you know, because that's kind of natural. But when you're older, I look back and I was like, oh, that was my first passport because I was always treated like an outsider. So I never had that pressure to fit in like my brothers and sisters which almost made me more curious about what else could be out there. You know, at that time we didn't have smartphones or social media and the internet. And so it was just me imagining that there must be something else. And I think that imagination and then also this internal built-in defiance, which I don't know where it comes from or where it came from, those, those tools kind of pushed me into doing other things and being curious about other things and, and exploring other opportunities. And not because I knew where I was going, but essentially just because I put one foot in front of the other that led me to art school, that led me then to Japan, and then eventually led me you know, here to New York. So when exactly did you pick up the markers or the pens? What did you start on? What was your, your medium? So I've always been writing and drawing just like all of us. And, and in a way, it's more of a question. It's like, when did you stop? And I don't think I ever really stopped. Right. But I have, in, and this is the power of reflection that you have as a creative person. You get to look back at the different chapters of your life. And a lot of my younger work, I could say younger work, a lot of that got destroyed or thrown away because I just didn't have a place to keep it. But the sum of it that I do have, I look back and it's so dark. It's so dark. Oh, and wow. there's a lot of poetry, a lot of writing. Um, and, you know, stuff like fall, fall, fall against my resistance, my open <laughs> arms closed to you. And there's lots of drawings of like skulls and, you know, my head hurts and just just things like that, where it was just an outlet of just trying to understand myself physically or the environment around me. It's like you were getting your emotions out through your art. Yeah, I was getting the anger out. I was getting the helplessness out. I was using art unconsciously as a tool to get it out. And, you know, I think about this all the time. When you don't use art or some sort of creative outlet to get things out, you're going to go in a different direction. And that might be substance, that might be self-harm, that might be this, that might be that. And so it's such a gift that naturally my inclination was to pick up a pen, something that was accessible to me, 
and to use that as an outlet to get this stuff out without knowing that that would be in a way like therapeutic to where I was at that time. Are there any similarities between what you were doodling back then to what you're doing now? Yes and no. There's definitely, and this is the, sometimes it's, it's I, I, w- I don't want to use the word scary, but there is this really strange moment sometimes when you find a sketchbook from 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago, and you open it and you see yourself writing or you see, you know, you see a question in there that you wrote 20 years ago. And you just wrote that again last week. And so I do really believe that we have this core. We have this core of us that is us. That is essentially the questions that we are put here to try and answer. And even though we think that those questions that we are coming up with now or the work that I'm doing now or the things that I'm thinking about now are new, they're not. They've always been there. And and maybe it's just the confidence or the medium or the industry in how I'm trying to answer that, that's what changes. Were you ever drawn to, to travel or visit a place that you just had no idea? Like it was like a spur of the moment type of a thing. And then when you got there, you were like, shoot, this feels like home. So I was obsessed with Japan. And this happened because in 1999, I met my first friend who was from Japan. And at that time, Japan seemed like the furthest place I could ever imagine existing. You know, I never really knew where it was. I just knew it was a really long plane ride away and they looked different and they ate different food and it smelled different and all these sorts of things. Uh And so when I finally was like, okay, well, I want to go there. You know, when I first went to Japan in, I think the year 2000, I had a really surreal situation where I was on the subway and I was like, I've been here before. And then I realized that I had all these dreams that were in Japan. And it's such a surreal situation to be on a, on a subway system in Tokyo and be like, I know this. This is so familiar. That's what I'm talking I've about. Been, I, I've been here <laughs> and I meant to have, you know, I meant, to, meant to be, be here. here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I had so many of those experiences in, in Japan like that. And now you spend a lot of time in jazz clubs, correct? While you're there experimenting with music and your drawings. So I, when I first moved to Japan, I didn't draw for a long time. Because I was so, I, I don't know what the right word is, but I was so dismayed by leaving art school and, and realizing I would never get a job doing art or that's how I felt at the time. And so I just, I really didn't want to draw. And the thing is, is when you avoid something, you're meant to do it. It finally catches up with you. So I, I started drawing. And at the same time, I loved dancing. So I was always going out whenever I could to, you know, these Japanese clubs and they have the best DJs and musicians and dancers and sound sound systems. No, I I love a good old (laughs) dance. But the thing about in Tokyo also is clubs are really expensive to get into. So there's usually a high door charge. And I was like, well, how do I go out three, four, five times a week, six times a week and not pay? Mm -hmm. And in Japanese clubs, you have all these VJs, these visual jockeys. So they're doing live visuals to, you know, to all the music and the DJs. And I was like, okay, I want to do that. And so that's how you became a VJ. Yeah, that's yeah. So, so cool. it's so it a visual jockey because here the the they call it like a video jockey. It's a VJ. So what's a visual? Yeah. So I think in in America you have, you have the VJ like someone who's presenting yeah, like MTV, MTV or something like exactly. that. That's but not you what are it creating is. Art. art. So you have a DJ which is a disc jockey that's mm-hmm. usually at the front of the room, right. and then you have the VJ, the visual jockey who is at the back of the room doing all the visuals. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to become a VJ and. 
usually the typical VJ perhaps at that time is someone that is mixing video clips and there's someone running and then there's some lips and then there's a tunnel and you're like, why is someone running? Like, why is that related to what's going on right now? So I was like, oh, I could do that, but with drawing. The first time I ever performed in Japan, my friend invited me and I was doing visuals to a band playing. And this time it was more analog. So I had pens, paper, under a visual presenter or an OHP and then that was projected behind the band mm. and so I remember the first time that I did this is that you know there's this band playing at the time it's a more of an avant-garde band so just you know kind of not typical music I would choose to listen to mm. and the band started playing and it was just like really strange music like and I was like what is happening and I was meant to be drawing and I just was fr I froze I froze because oh, I was no. like what is this but this was like a really pivotal point in my life or my career because when I froze nothing happened on the screen the screen was blank because it was my role my charge to create the visuals. Mm -hmm. And I realized I was in my head. And so when I realized I was in my head, I realized I had to get out of it and in my body. And so that's when I just started drawing and just started moving my hands and started just to really be in that moment, be in that space. And I put myself in a position where I understood that I couldn't hesitate. I couldn't be insecure. I couldn't be anyone else but myself in that moment. And that really is the foundation of my whole career now as an artist. Putting myself in a position where there's no time to think, hesitate, overplan, be insecure, or be anyone else but yourself. And then now fast forward, I did that for four or five years in Japan, doing visuals to Japanese avant-garde uh, musicians and Bluto dancers. And, and then on the other hand, very digitally in Japanese mega clubs to thousands of people. So thousands of people would be dancing and I'm drawing on my Wacom tablet. And sometimes I, I alpha and beta tested, you know, the, the Wacom tablets. I, I tested the first Bluetooth ones and I tested them by, I created like a drum strap for my drawing tablet. And then I would walk into the middle of a crowd of thousands of people dancing and I'd be drawing. And those drawings would be on the projector screens around the, around the venue and then if the crowd was going, woo, I would write woo and then zoom in and zoom <laughs> so out and move cool. that around. Does and then, any of that art get saved or does it kind of go with the end of the night? The, there's little bits here and there, but my idea at that time was I didn't want to be precious over the saving of the work because then it's not about the experience, it's right. about the result. And so in a way, five years of my life and career don't exist physically in a way that we can rewatch it or re-experience it but it exists in the memories of people that were there so why do you leave and when do you leave japan i literally woke up one day and i was like i'm ready and it's weird how things like that work you know i i, I was there and i put in all this time and i had a friend base there and i i worked there and i was ready what steps did you take to get yourself moving at that time when i had this epiphany that i should be leaving i met a couple of people from boston that were visiting New York. Boston. Boston. <laughs> Boston. And they, they said, you should come visit us. I was like, okay. <laughs> Do you have a couch? Perfect. Yes. How long can I stay? Yes. <laughs> exactly. And so I went and I stayed on their couch. Genius. Yes. And, and anyone that goes to, not so much Boston, but anyone that goes to Boston, then New York for a vacation, which that was at the time, you love it. Right. And I went to New York in 2008 for the first time. And I was like, oh my God, I love this place. I think I'm going to move here. 
And so I packed my bags and I flew to New York. And I, you know, before I did that, I found an immigration lawyer. I got an artist visa. Then I came to New York and slept on their couch at Greenwich and Rector down the road. 2008, the, one of the worst times to move to yep. a different economy or a different country. So where are you doing your art at this time? Do you have a studio? And what, are, what exactly yeah. are you doing? Because you practice in so many different mediums. So my art at that time when I moved was, you know, essentially I, I bought some canvases and set them up in my friend's living room. God bless your friend. <laughs> you <know? laughs> mm-hmm. And actually one of these friends has one of these pieces that I made up on his wall. And, and, and so we're looking at it because now it's kind of a time tap capsule. And I was drawing uh, in much more detail at that time. So, you know, there's people in there and places and things. And it kind of tells a story at that time. I was also using whatever was around me. So I was drawing on people. I was drawing on cars. I was creating little pop-ups. And I was essentially using whatever I had access to. And so before I almost gave up and moved away, I realized that New York was being hard on me and for me because I naively just thought things would work out. And when you naively think things will work out is because you're playing the if game. And I talk about this a lot. You know, the if game is when I come to New York and I'm like, well, if I had a studio, if I had a mentor, if I had a money, if I had a gallery, or if I had lots of money, or if I had this, if I had that, then I would be okay. Right. And then that's a game. That's a game that you cannot win. And so when you realize that you're playing the if game, you're like, well, what do I have? Okay, I have my friend's couch, my friend's living room. I have- you to get scrappy and resourceful. Yeah, I have this, I have that, I have that. And then you start to utilize whatever is around you. And I think if you look back at my career in New York, you see that that's kind of the trajectory of it. You know, I started to draw on my bedroom walls and I would share it. You know, I share pictures on Facebook or wherever, like I'm drawing on my walls. And and then eventually someone reached out and said, oh, Chantel, we saw, you know, that you're drawing on your walls. You know, our editor would love to write a story about it. And they're like, great. And then they're like, okay, it's going to be in this little publication called the New York Times. You're like, great. (laughs) And then they're like, oh, they love it so much. They're going to make it the cover of the home and garden section. You're like, okay, great. And then they're like, well, they love it so much. They're going to make it two page spread. Well, it seems like you're constantly throwing yourself outside of your comfort zone and everything that you do. And I want to discuss a little bit, I want to go into your music, but first I want to talk a little bit about the relationship with the ballet and how that kind of came about. Because that was, that began what, three or four years ago for you? First with American Ballet Theater? Um, With New York City Ballet, I did the artist series. I was the seventh artist, I believe, and mine was in 2019. And so, you know, in 2018, the ballet approached me and said, you know, we've seen your work. You know, we saw the museum show you had at Albright Knox. We saw the global collection you had with Puma. We saw this, we saw that. We'd love to work with you. And so, you know, I ended up taking over the Lincoln Center, the promenade. And uh, before I did that, I interviewed, I think, over 20 dancers and asked them why they do what they do. And where the dance begins and where do they end and you know, what will they do when they retire. And for me, it was important to speak to the dancers and other people that worked in this company before I even figured out what I wanted to do practically. Because I, I don't believe in just walking into a space and inflicting myself upon it. And I feel like it should be based on the people that are building that space itself and be relevant to them. And so... I interviewed all these dancers. I met people in the costume department, the marketing department, this department, that department. 
And then from that, that those words and, and conversations inspired all of the work. And so I took over the floor and did these uh, drawings based on those conversations. And then I went to the theater and watched them rehearse and create over 30 of these choreograph. I don't know how to call it, like choreographic drawings, which were all displayed. And then I opened up the artist series evenings with performances on stage. So mm-hmm. one night I opened up with a drawing performance. One night I interviewed Silas Farley, mm-hmm. principal dancer at the time. And then another night I worked with Justin Peck as he was introducing one of his new pieces. Mm-hmm. And so that was also nice because I think people are not also used to seeing an artist on stage, presenting, talking, opening, mm-hmm. connecting, conversing. And I wanted to show that side of what an artist can be. And I was really proud of that work. It looked amazing. And, and you know, I, I'd walked past the Lincoln Center so many times. So to see my work and my words outside of it and on it and in it and throughout it was really incredible. Coincidentally, I'd also met probably around the same time Miko Nishin, who's the artistic director of the Boston Ballet. And Miko you know, found me after a, a presentation I gave. I was like, we have to work with you somehow. Cool. And so I ended up um, hosting or emceeing uh, one of the nights at the Boston Ballet for an event they have called Choreographer. And Miko was also like, you know, we, you know, we want to work with you somehow and perhaps have you work with a choreographer and, you know, create like a really beautiful, um, you know, kind of piece. Mm-hmm. And then after I did a New York City Ballet, Miko was like, no, we can do better than that. You can create your own dance. And how did that and, make you feel? And it made me feel simultaneously horrified right. and Good. excited. Perfect. Well, that's what I that's to the perfect ask. combination. Like, did you experience in that situation, like imposter syndrome. You know, I think it's something that's so prevalent in a lot of us, especially women. Like it's it's the reverse. It's more like, oh, I've got to really dig into who I am. Right. You know, because I I'm not from that world, I'll never be from that world. So I have to be more from my world. Like, okay, if I'm going to make a ballet, what's a ballet I would make? You know, because it's tempting to go and like, look at what other choreographers would do or this or that. But I haven't spent a lifetime in dance. Mm -hmm. And you want to respect their art as well, right? It's Well, I want us to find a common language where we meet in the middle. When you were in that phase though, of moving from couch to where you are now, at times I feel like when we are in that struggle phase, that chase for trying to get something is almost like a pressure cooker. And then when freedom starts to open up where we can support ourselves a little bit more, that creativity can open up even more. Do you feel that that happened for you? Do you feel that there was a phase where you were like, oh my God, because you can maybe breathe a little bit easier, you were able to tap into another element of your art? Or did you really just keep forging forward in in the same medium? Did that not affect you as deeply? I think there's a couple of answers in that or a couple of different thoughts. So one of them, when I was living in Japan, I did start to become comfortable. You know, I started to create a career and have jobs and get paid. And it did the opposite. With that comfortability, I was uncomfortable with it. I was uncomfortable being able to pay rent. I was uncomfortable knowing that I had projects. I was uncomfortable with maybe this idea of being successful because I never experienced that before. And sometimes the struggle is what is comfortable because in struggle, there is ease. If I'm struggling, the only thing I have to be concerned about is struggling. 
Mm-hmm. If I'm comfortable, now I actually have to think about my place in the world and what I do with it. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, coming to, to America and like having some successes and, and um, becoming more comfortable, you have to dig in deeper to find more and more ways to be uncomfortable. Otherwise, you creatively flatline. So you need to be uncomfortable. You need to be vulnerable. You need to be struggling. Otherwise, you're not growing. You right. Know? And and I've kind of lost my other kind of thought on that. But I think I wanted to say is I'm so happy that I started my career in Japan. You know, Japan is a culture that is craft-based where you literally see people trying to master something over generations. And so in this idea of mastery, I asked myself when I first moved to Japan, what well, is something that I could master in this lifetime? Okay, this idea of a line doesn't matter how bodily abled you are, everyone on the planet can create a line. Okay, so if now if I can create a line and that line is recognizably mine, have I not mastered something in this lifetime if I work towards that? Something that is so simple but profound. And so I think there was this ingrainment in me in this sense of I'm taking my time because I have a lifetime. So coming to America, I've never been in a rush. I've been taking my time because if I master that now, then what's the point in this lifetime of trying to master something? I think we wanted to brush a little bit on some of the collaborations that you've done because it seems they've been an integral part of your career. So how do you go about picking and choosing the ones that you, I mean, I think you brush on it a little bit. I think you do what's authentic to you, but how do they typically come to you? And, you know, in the past, I've tried to go to brands that I want to work with and be like, hi, I'm an artist. I'm a big <laughs> fan of your brand. And, you know, I love, love it. This? I've been yeah. using your brand for years. And the reaction you get is so patronizing or, oh, so have you worked with, have you collaborated before? Um, that sounds no. so annoying. Oh, have you ever done that before? It's like, who cares? Why don't we be the first one? I hate that. Um, you know, do you, <laughs> you know? You can't have to go, ba- be going to that now. Basically no. like, do you know? Yeah, if they don't know you, you know, I can't assume everyone knows my work and sometimes they don't. And huh. the way you, you get treated is so, is so bad, you know, because if they don't know who you are, they don't care who you are. Mm-hmm. And that's still very true. So the projects and the people I have collaborated with, it's because they've come to me. Okay. So when they're coming to you, you don't have to sell yourself. You know, they're selling themselves to you. And at that point, you know, I have a little bit of a mental checklist. Okay, ethically and morally, do they align with where I'm coming from? Is this something that will challenge me and myself? Is it something that will expose my message to a different demographic? Is it something that I can't make by myself? Is it something that I have the bandwidth to do? Is it a brand or a person that um, values me perhaps as much as I will value them? Is there any artist that exists out there now, performing artists that you would love to work with? So I saw, I got to see, there's this guy, uh, Lonnie Holly, and I got to see him perform at the Brooklyn Museum. And he's, I believe, in his late 80s and he's still performing. Was he at the, um, the Virgil Abloh thing? The no, he was, was at, um, okay. I think it was a very... Because there was that incredible band. No, that the no it was just an older. It was a very low key. It was, um, he was just ra- on there on a random night and, and the theater was pretty much empty. There, oh, interesting. there was only a handful of people there watching him perform. It was one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. And it's improvised, it's with a band. And I'm like, this is what I want to be doing. And it's so funny when I've been like trying to think of this thing I want to do for a long time, but then you see someone actually doing it. 
And so that's the inspiration. And, and right. someone recently said to me, you know, inspiration is invitation. Yes. And, and, and so I was like, okay, that's like, I want to do what he's doing. Like I want to band and I want to just improvise and get lost and see where we go and, you know, explore that. And so that's, that's where I'm at. So, so collaboratively, um, you know, if you want to join my band, give me a shout and like, let's go make some music. Hey, I'll always to land. Yeah. I can play the triangle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> bring it on, bring it on. You but know? we can interpretively dance and that yes. actually won't yes. be them tragic. Yes. If you stick me on an instrument, it will probably be tragic. Although I self-proclaimed slayed the recorder when I was in it. I love that. And that's another I thing. I slayed that so, thing. So that I play terrible. the piano and people say, oh my God, like how long have you been playing? This is beautiful. I'd be like, well, I don't know how to play actually. And I've only been playing like not long. So that's another thing. Sometimes you can't give that information away because people don't know what to do with it. They right. literally don't. But yeah. how do you approach the piano? Like do you, so I, for is the piano the one that calls you the most or are there other instruments? The piano, 100%. Why? And I think it's because the black and white keys, it's like it. a drawing. And so what I realized that playing the piano is the same as drawing. Mm. You approach it confidently without hesitation and with repetition and it works. Oh, that's interesting. I never thought of it like that. And that's exactly how I pick up a pen. I pick right. up a pen. I approach the canvas confidently without hesitation and with repetition. And I create a drawing. There's no bumps in right. those lines. And so you, you sit down and you play the piano like that. You just play it confidently. Right. And then it, it talks back to you. Yeah. I like that because it actually has like a reverb actually if you think it about does. it. The, the, but the notes yeah. talk back to you yeah. when you hit them. Yeah. And that's similar to your fingertip against the with the pen against a surface. Yeah. Oh, I love that analogy. So I don't play the piano, but I play on the piano. Yeah. Right. Oh, I play on the piano. Mm -hmm. So you end up in LA, right? You leave, what, New York two years ago? So it's funny because... Um, you know, I'm, I'm telling people like, well, I'm, I'm moving to LA this month. They're like, didn't you move already? Like, <laughs> oh, you're now just officially moving. I'm officially moving to LA uh, this month. Oh yeah. I thought, oh, you, I, okay. thought you I thought you left. Yeah. I thought you left a year I, ago. Yeah. I, f I feel like, you know, I've, I've been out in the world going back and forth and, and, and now I'm finally admitting it to myself. Yeah. yeah. Now, how do you feel inspired differently that you're on the West coast? I think I never thought I would be a West Coast person or an LA person. But LA has been really kind to me in the sense that I'm finding space to relax, finding space to work out. I'm finding space to walk along the beach and go and look at nature, go hiking. Uh, all those cheesy things that, you know, us New Yorkers in a sense don't really make time for. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I want to make time for those things right now. I feel like... Right now is the perfect time for me to be making time for those things. And, and so I'm, I'm happy to officially be doing that very soon. Yeah. We're, we're feeling the bug too. I'm <laughs> heading there next week so I can get my yeah. hike in. And I've the same has left space open in my schedule yeah. so that I can make sure that I can be in nature because I think it really is so, so helpful yeah. and really does open you up. What type of environment do you find the most inspiring? Like I know I'm always called to ocean or water. I'm, I'm a city. I love cities, mm -hmm. but at the same time, I love mountains. Okay. And I just love looking at them. So this is me. Now I drive, you know, so now I'm driving around LA and I'm just like, wow, wow. <laughs> like, I you love, don't mind the traffic? You just leave whenever there's not traffic. Like, yeah. I, I don't, you know. Got it. You're not keeping like yeah. business hours. Yeah. No. So, <laughs> so I find myself wowing a lot, you know, That's and cool. I'm just by myself being like, wow, so beautiful. Wow. Yeah, so beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know, we did that tonight with the sunset, but you do it less often here, you know. 
It's true. Because we're all caught up. That's the problem here we in get, New York. Yeah. And, and also, in, you know, you're in New York. You know, you got, you're going to bed at 1 a.m., 2 a.m. Yeah. After midnight, you know, it's hard to wake up in the morning. In L.A., you know, I'm going to bed at like 9 p.m. I'm waking my up dream. at 6. That's, That's what I do. I I'm making my own granola. You know, yeah. it's just, <laughs> we got to move. That's fabulous. When you are in LA, do you feel artistically on the pen? Have new little characters? Have you noticed any new characters starting to come in yet? I've not really been drawing because in in the in that sense, because I've been doing the So you the really, so you really are taking oh, like wow. a strong pause. Yeah. On. Yeah. I'm I'm drawing with sound and, and words. Okay. Wow. So I'm pumped to see what so little you can go to my up. SoundCloud. There's yes. literally, yeah, okay, there's, there's literally <laughs> hundreds of hours of, wow. of music up there. And I've been putting all the live performances up there. And I've actually just started to put the live performances up on YouTube. Um, I love documenting things and organizing them. So, <laughs> you know, I, I'm documenting everything. It's going up on SoundCloud, maybe eventually in other places. And then it's all going on YouTube as well, because I'm a big believer in exposing or sharing the process that I'm on with the music. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I use the term music loosely because I know people like I'm not a pop band. I'm not doing, you know, I'm doing this my own thing again. Um, So I also have to find the right vocabulary or language to use with it. And I'll find it as time goes on. But for now, I'll just say music. But I want people to watch the videos of me like failing or not being good at it or or growing in confidence, you know. The yeah. process and the journey. Because that's the first thing that I said to her when you were finished the other night. I was like, oh, this was actually completely, it was the same, but completely different from the last time yeah. that I saw you do it. I'm, it was like this, it was a totally new performance. I'm I'm practicing. Yeah. And that's the whole mm-hmm. point of practicing to evolve and to grow within the craft that you're working on. Yeah. Well, it's amazing too that it like, you know, you've been so successful in your career to now just like, take a complete left, even though it's still in the arts world, but to do something and to be a novice and to not let that intimidate you because that's scary, right? I think when you're in the middle of your life. But if you look at my career, I've always been doing that. Right. When I'm going to like MIT to learn how to solder circuit boards or when I move into Japan to become a VJ or then when I'm like choreographing a ballet or like when I, you know, like if you look at my career, I'm always doing, you know, I'm going to Autodesk for an engineering art artist residency. You know, like mm-hmm. there's always these different things I've always been interested in. And that's what grabs my attention at that time. Do you find inspiration? Do you force yourself to go out there and look for new inspiration? Or do you find yourself that it just really comes to you organically? It's just around you. All you know? the time. I'm always curious about things and how things work. And you know. and technology, though, you're really interested in as well. Yeah, I've always been interested in technology. I've, I've always been alpha and beta testing things. And you know. <laughs> How do you feel about AI and like how... The, how it may be affecting the artist world. So I've stayed away from it because I was in 2015, I was experimenting with AI mm-hmm. and I had a very, uh, not a good situation with that. So I was very curious about, you know, when I create a drawing, for example, I start with a DNA, the skeleton of a drawing. And then those negative spaces of the drawing, in a way, I already know what's going to go in them before I see them. And so long story short, I device this whole technique in like testing that theory and so I found a couple of collaborators um, from MIT to explore this kind of digitally mm-hmm. and so we essentially long story short we trained um, we trained an AI on uh, a data set of like four or five hundred of my drawings and then we created new skeletons to see how the AI would uh, fill those in based on my work 
And then when the AI did that, my collaborators turned around and said, okay, now we own the output. Oh my God. Because we trained the model. Right. And I said, well- And that's the issue. I said, well, the output is a derivative of the input. Mm -hmm. And then they went and got a couple of lawyers from the Berkman School. Um, so basically the cyber law clinic, which is like the law school the at, law at Harvard. Mm -hmm. And they were essentially trying to come after me for the ownership of my intellectual property as an artist. And so at that time, 2015, AI was not as advanced as it is now, but still there was this, uh, there wasn't precedent set in who is the owner of something that has been trained on a model or of a data set. Mm -hmm. So they were trying to use me. This is my, my kind of opinion. They were trying to use me at that time to set precedent in this AI ownership. And so I kind of totally retreated from that and, and from AI and kind of put these warnings out on the internet with, with regards to this project and says, they'd be very wary of who your collaborators are and what their intention is, because it's not about the machine. It's about the intentions behind the human that's controlling those machines. Right. And so, you know, fast forward a few years on, I'm like, I'm okay. Um, the only way I would use AI is I have complete ownership over the output and the input and the model and you know, so that it's kind of, um, it's all in-house in that sense. Because, you know, I've been a huge collaborator. I have friends that I've collaborated with over 20 years and no one's ever seen that work. You know, we meet, we collaborate, and that's just how we communicate. And, and I have a number of friends like that. I think in this case, um, people are a little bit younger and a little hungrier um, and, you know, willing to kind gimme, of step, step yeah. on the toes of other people's lifetimes of work. Mm -hmm. um, and I think... You know, with any tools that we create, it's just about the intention of the people that are controlling those tools. I completely agree with you on that as well. Yeah. Chantal, do you have anything else that you want to add? Uh, do you have any other questions, Paula? I meant to I ask actually you. do want to ask you a little about your personal style. Yeah, that's right. I oh. knew she had something else to <laughs> I'm like, do I, I have, like, do I have one? I, oh my gosh. See, no, because I feel like you always look so cool. And I know that it like, it takes effort to look effortlessly cool and chic. So I wanted to know, do you have a relationship with fashion? And if so, what is it? Because I feel like you could, you can have some uh, sick fashion collaborations. I think like I, you could make this, you could have this yeah, dress. Yeah, this dress should should be totally yours. Yeah. I agree. I don't know. I feel like I've just been dressing the same since I was a child. And sometimes I feel like I do. You dress like this as a kid. Well, like comfortable. I'm in a t-shirt and like, essentially I'm in t-shirt and comfy pants. And she's got a, a comb and in her I, hair. She's, I, got I, a comb she's so cool. And I've had a comb in my hair for like 20 plus years. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, you like, know. Why she's like, you this is me. you that comb one day? You're just like, <laughs> I just, I, I like it's like, it it's a little comfort blanket. I did this in, yeah. Over, I, over 20 years ago, it's just been there forever. But, you know, I dress very comfortably, uh, mostly T-shirts and shorts and pants. And, you know, I had a uniform for like forever, you know, my white Oxford drawn on shirts and black pants and stuff. And I recently kind of like um, stopped wearing my uniform. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I, I kind of love fashion. Um, I like to have a uniform I also just like wear whatever I'm comfortable in and I don't <laughs> overthink it, you know? Well, you're doing a good job. Oh, well, I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> I was yeah. hoping to get this like big elaborate, like I've always had this love. I mean, you have no. like cool jewelry. I, I've seen you in like some cool chunky necklaces. Yeah, I feel, you know, it's just um, things and people that come across my life that are like wear this or try this. And if I like yeah. it, I say yes. And if I don't, I say no. And 
I just keep it simple. And I think that's it. If you delve into me, it's, it's like that simplicity and comfortability mixed with some overthinking sometimes, you know, yeah. in mm-hmm. a creative way. It's really beautiful to see how you speak. And I consistently see that young girl in you who is just shining really brightly. And I see her, I personally see her like right here. I just like see her here on your chest as you walk through space. And, and it's really beautiful because I can see you talking to each other and presenting together, if that makes sense. And does, is that something that you feel that's just some an inspiration? It's how I've, Right from when she met right you. Right from yesterday. when I met you yesterday. Like, I, have to be I honest. saw her in the I child. saw I like, like her little child like right yeah. here with her and like <laughs> the two of them just hanging out. <laughs> I've always felt like a big kid. And so maybe that's why. That's why. And that makes sense. And that's how you've kept your creativity is by keeping in touch with that young that young girl. And that's why it is so fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This has been fun. This, this is, is so, so awesome. So, so SoundCloud is where we're going. Yeah, go to SoundCloud. SoundCloud. We're going next. Chantel also just released a font. It's called Chantel Sands and it's with Google Fonts. It's free. It's open source. You can get it everywhere and anywhere. Mm-hmm. But before we go, we have some quick fire questions. We're going to have oh. some fun. Okay. Yeah. We're okay. going to lighten things up. <laughs> what are the three things you think about most every day? Um, why I exist. I, that's a tough one. Um, okay. So <laughs> this I think, is the I, one I, this that's is so the one that's, This is the question. <laughs> no, okay. So I think about like, that. I think about the question why a lot. That's why I have a tattoo. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about like what's going to happen that day. And I think about maybe what I'm going to eat for lunch. She hit the food one. Love it. (laughs) If you had a warning label, what would it be? There's no warning. Ooh. (laughs) Um, I don't know. Sneezes sometimes in the morning. (laughs) Morning sneezer. Yeah, morning sneezer. You heard it here first. Wash out for the boogers. (laughs) If if money were no object, what would you do? Exactly what I'm doing now. Love Love that. Last and final. Do you eat oysters? I love oysters. I don't seek them out, but if they're there, I enjoy them. Okay. How do you take your oysters? I don't overthink it. (laughs) (laughs) Do you dabble any juices and any mignonette on there or do you have a I'm not a professional oyster uh, (laughs) eater. If there's some nice stuff there, I don't know what anything's called. I I pull it on and I'll eat it. She tries it out. So she overthinks about everything but her food and her oysters. Yeah. So (laughs) actually someone said to me recently that they love that I'm not good at feeding myself or like I'm not good at food because I shouldn't be good at everything. This is true. That is true. (laughs) Well, Um, this has been so amazing and inspiring. And thank you so much for sharing your time, your energy, and the space with us. mm -hmm. And we hope this reaches a lot of people because I think it was really beautiful. I'm proud of you both for for doing this. and (laughs) thank you. you and sharing your yourselves with the world. And it's been lots of fun today. So thank you for having me. Getting our art out. Thank yes. you, Chantal. Getting the Getting art out. Yeah. <laughs> okay, see ya. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to World's Your Oyster. If you love what you're listening to, be sure to like, rate, and review this episode wherever you listen to your podcast. And follow us on Instagram at World's Your Oyster and share this episode with a friend. We'd really appreciate it. Bye-bye.